Hi, this is Suparna Goswami, Associate Editor with the Information Security Media Group. In a day and age when surveillance by governments is on the rise, how can they maintain a balance between security and privacy? Speaking more on this will be Stephen Feldstein, Professor of Boise State University. Thank you, Stephen, for joining the ISMG discussion. Thank you for having me. So, Stephen, AI surveillance by the government is increasingly getting common. And after all, it is only natural that companies and governments leverage the latest technology to catch hold of bad actors in the state. But at the time when privacy is also gaining momentum, how do you think should government keep a balance? No, it's a great question. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things in this area is that you're really seeing a gap that is growing between what the technology is actually capable of achieving and what the act and what the rules are that dictate how this this technology will be used. So I'll give you a good example. So one of the technologies that I have looked a lot about uh, has been the technology of facial recognition. So use of facial recognition and surveillance cameras and other types of applications and devices around the world. Now this is a, te- a technology that is increasing in terms of its accuracy. Uh, it's one that many you know many governments are relying upon in order to identify potentially uh, different actors who might be causing problems, those who might be represent terrorists or security threats, and so on. So it's one that I think there's a really strong security rationale for governments wanting to adopt this technology. On the other hand, you know there's a lot of questions about bias that's inherent in terms of how the technology is being used, and there's also questions uh, when it comes to accuracy, whether uh, there's also you know actually inordinately high level of false positives when it comes to you know the use of this. And so you know in the United States at least, you're starting to see a growing backlash against this technology. So even though it's recognized that there is a utility for police departments in the U.S to adopt this facial recognition. On the other hand, many municipalities, many cities like San Francisco, Cambridge, and a, and a number of others are putting a, a moratorium on its use. They're saying, wait a second, until we have rules that govern how it'll be used, where the data will be held, what the privacy standards ought to be, we're not going to go forward and we're not comfortable relying upon this technology, even when it comes to policing. And so I think to me, this demonstrates, especially in the United States, but many other municipalities and jurisdictions as well, this struggle to find a balance between, on the one hand, making sure that the technology is matched up with the latest capabilities to lead to public safety, while on the other hand, making sure that the the appropriate privacy protections are put in place. And until that sort of balance is found, I think we're still a ways away from accomplishing that, you're going to see a, a lot of back and forth as uh, citizens, governments, and companies really try to find the right middle ground and balance uh, in terms of ensuring all these different objectives uh, are met. But also clearly, you have seen the various kind of AI surveillance that is taking place. What are the type of AI surveillance that is getting, uh, taking place? And do you think the data is being secured by the government? Yeah, so, you know, there were sort of three different types of technologies related to artificial intelligence that I, or, or platforms. The ones I was most concerned with, the ones that I felt, you know, I could sort of best measure and that are sort of actively being deployed are grouped into three categories. So the first category is sort of smart city, safe city systems. And so what these are, are essentially a number of different companies. Huawei is one of them. Other companies as well have sort of pioneered this this concept. You know, the idea is to put in place sensors that are located throughout a city and they can help provide data uh, in, in sort of real time that can offer city planners and others who are working for the city, including police departments, the ability to monitor and track key issues related to the urban area. So for example, smart cities can help with congestion, they can help with smart traffic lights, they can help with smart metering when it comes to electricity usage, 
But a big component that is built up more and more is the sort of placement of surveillance cameras around different cities and the transmission of data, oftentimes facial recognition imaging that's monitored uh, oftentimes via algorithms through police departments in order to determine who is doing what where. So that's one type of technology is this sort of integrated video surveillance analytic capabilities via the smart city, safe city platform. The second one I looked at is a specific category of facial recognition. So that's everything from, you know, facial recognition being used, picked up, you know, through, through cameras, through image data databases that are then are, that are mined and sorted uh, by algorithms to find certain patterns or, or individuals of interest. So that was the second category. The third category is kind of the broader category of smart policing. So this can be all this is going to be sort of incorporating and integrating usage of surveillance cameras and, and, and footage into police tactics and deployments. Uh, it could also even result in or be part of uh, what they call kind of predictive policing, which is the idea that based on prior data, what types of crimes have been committed where, you can start to build a data set that then is key towards an algorithm that will actually try to predict different areas in the future will, will, where crime will potentially be committed to higher degrees. And, you know, there's a lot, of, there's a bit of controversy with that. So those are the three kind of broad areas that I, that I looked at when it came to trying to sort of ascertain where AI surveillance is really, where there's a, a lot of, um, of a focus point. And so then your question is, well, to what extent are countries around the world protecting data appropriately? And the answer to that is it's really, A, it really varies, and B, it's completely unknown. And so countries that are autocratic and authoritarian, places like Russia, Kazakhstan, Turkey, you know, places where there's significant concerns, documented human rights abuses when it comes to the use of these types of technologies towards surveillance and other ends. Uh, and, th and in those places, even if there are laws in the books, and that kind of varies, they're certainly not being forced and enforced. And so, you know, data privacy means very little in those contexts when it comes to the ability of governments to use data as they see fit, oftentimes violating sort of human rights. And then, of course, though, there's many other countries as well, uh, some of which are liberal or hybrid democracies, some of which are very strong liberal democracies, places like Italy, the UK, the United States, Spain. They also have and are relying on artificial intelligence, surveillance technologies in different forms. Uh, and in those places, uh, you know, it, it batteries. Uh, there's some, you know, sort of general rules that are coming to effect, particularly in Europe, like, uh, you know, represented by GDPR. But I think that's still nascent. And I'm not sure that it applies as well as it should when it comes to the use of new technologies. Uh, and then certainly in places like the United States, you know, we have a patchwork set of regulations. We don't have consensus yet when it comes to high, how privacy regulations ought to work. And at the moment, at the moment, I think most of the energy is actually towards coming up with a privacy framework that would entail sort of voluntary guidelines that companies would agree to. And that's very much a work in practice. In fact, NIST, which is the agency in the United States that sort of handles uh, this sort of thing, uh, at the moment, they held a privacy workshop at Boise State University just a few months ago because they're actively developing these volunteer guidelines to get consensus between corporations, companies, governments, and civil society about what a, an appropriate privacy framework would look like. All that's to say is that even while the technology is out there, the actual regulations and, and guidelines are still being developed, and there isn't a clear set of norms yet that are pointing in a specific direction in terms of where this will go. Sure. So also, there has been an increasing talk around how there should be a distinction between treatment of business data and personal data. What exactly 
do you think they mean by this and how exactly can this be achieved? Yeah, I mean, I, I am not sure that I totally agree with that framework. And But it, I mean, it, it seems to me that you have a, a pretty sort of murky middle ground when it comes to determining what is personal and what is business and how you differentiate between the two. So certainly there are some things that I think one can can clearly say are business related, you know, things that are, are very much out of the personal domain that relate to one's, you know, to operations when, within a particular enterprise, whether it's sort of revenue streams, other sorts of things like that. And sure, okay, so that that's clearly within the business domain, you know, but what about data that's that's sent over from a personal user because of services that that person is procuring that involves handing over from some very specific information related to where they live, related to their personal habits, related to their profile. Is that business? You know, is the is the information that one would provide on Facebook when it comes to birthdays, geolocations, is that business or is that purely personal? Because it can be used for business, but also is something that very much kind of relates to a social realm. And you know, what about LinkedIn? I mean, LinkedIn is generally used as a social network when it comes to, you know, kind of presenting and undertaking professional transactions. And yet it also includes a significant amount of personal information that one might not want to have sort of access by governments or at least would want to constrain very closely. So to me, these are kind of this swirling amount of questions when it comes to how you define privacy and how you specifically delineate it. And I'm not so sure that you can just put in place a clean separation between this is business and this is personal. And therefore, you know, we're able to kind of differentiate between the two and create appropriate guidelines. I think it's a much messier middle and that I think it's something that requires more public debate uh, and discourse. Sure. So you spoke about personal data of people, but uh, what happens when governments use non-personal data of people to monetize? That's happening across governments around the world. So do you think it's uh, practical for the government to take permission from citizens for each and every data they use? Or you think this is how privacy has to be designed? Every data, even if it's non-personal, you need to, citizens should at least know about it. What should be the right path? So I assume you're talking about like metadata that isn't personally yeah, attributable. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, a tricky thing. I would I would think that probably something like that would have a lower level of scrutiny than and a lower level of protection. But you know, there should be still still be a basic level of notice when it comes to how a government will use aggregate uh, statistics. You know, I mean, I, I think you know the way I would sort of look upon it, and I think this is one thing that people like David Kay, the UN Special Rapporteur, who is looking at a lot of these kind of privacy and data issues, would say is that. You know, start with a framework by by asking yourselves, are there rights involved by an individual and how are those implicated? And if those rights are not directly involved in a way where there can be personally linked to an individual, then you still have to ask from a higher societal perspective, what are the potential privacy implications of that? And how, how will this data be used? You know, to what ends will the government and what what purposes is the particular government trying to accomplish? And, you know, what is the public policy rationale for its usage? I mean, I think ultimately uh, it comes down to a couple basic concepts, which are not necessarily specific to technology, but that we all recognize are extremely important. One of which is transparency. So understanding very clearly how, what kind of data the government is accessing and what it's being used for. And then accountability and the right of redress. So if there is our violations that occur, you know, one of the things that we do know is that it's hard to draw a bright line about 
how data is used and what is specifically personal and what bleeds over. And uh, there are lots of mistakes that happen. Uh, so when that does occur, how do you fix the issue? How do you, what kind of redress can we, can you offer? What kind of accountability uh, systems are in place? To me, those are kind of the fundamental questions that, or, or like kind of the real organizing principles that are necessary in situations like you described. Houston, governments are also talking about how they can maintain, you know, a balance between data security and privacy. Do you think these things overlap? How, how would you, what would be your suggestion? How can they do that? Well, you know, like all these other issues, I think it's, complicated. I think they're linked, you know, in the sense that, you know, you want to ensure that, you know, privacy is linked to data security. The, the whole idea that making sure there are clear rules governing how data will be stored, how it will be protected, under what circumstances can it be accessed, what are the what are the rules governing that? You know, those are kind of the key questions that are really, really kind of that I think many, many governments are grappling with. And And, you know, what's interesting is one of the things I've done, I'm writing a book, right now that kind of looks at, you know, kind of the issue of digital repression. So how are governments exploiting technologies to accomplish certain political objectives that may be repressive in nature? Uh, and one of the things that, that's interesting is that, you know, you see a little bit of that, a lot of variance when it comes to what governments feel is the right approach when it comes to the integrity of personal data. So in some countries I've visited, I've visited Thailand, for example, there's a lot of pressure when it comes to the Thai government, what they believe is appropriate when it comes to the type of data that they're requesting uh, from different pl technology platforms, whether it's YouTube, uh, you know, user data from Facebook, or even content that they either want to want to access or they want to restrict. And so then, you know, this go this then really kind of becomes, uh, in some ways, a country by country issue because what Thailand feels is justified by its own norms, its own regulations and how it approaches things is very different than what India, you know, might might assume is the right way to approach things or the United States or uh, countries in Europe. And so, you know, this is where unpacking this issue becomes very complicated, but also essential if we're going to find a way forward. Well, thanks a lot, Stephen, for sharing your thoughts on how governments across the globe can maintain a balance between security and privacy. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. You were listening to Stephen Wilston for ISM Genesia. This is Suparna Goswami. Thank you for listening.